Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting new books, and this week I'm very pleased to say we have Robert Gelatly on the show. He's been a guest on the show before, and this time we're talking about his terrific new book, Stalin's Curse, Battling for Communism in War and Cold War. Uh, this is a revisionist book in the full sense, as you'll see during the uh, course of the interview. Robert has some very interesting things to say about Stalin and Stalin's role in, mm, what shall we say, uh, well, let's just say it in a kind of full-throated way, starting the Cold War. Uh, and uh, so I look forward to hearing uh, him talk a little bit about that. But before we turn to the book itself, Robert, maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself well, um, uh, and I teach at Florida State University, where I'm the Earl Rayback Professor of History. Um, I teach uh, mostly now comparative history courses uh, dealing with the, the, the USSR and Nazi Germany, um, the Holocaust. I, te- I have I teach on the ho- uh, course on the Holocaust. Um, I was um, uh, born and raised in Newfoundland. Uh, I uh, went to um, the London School of Economics in London to do my um, PhD. Um, I've taught at a variety of places, and now I'm here. And um, um, you know, they're they're treating me like uh, a king, well, like a prince. <laughs> and and um, uh, you know, everything is um, uh, is just great here. Um, I, I I I really enjoy uh, the university um, uh, atmosphere that we have. Um, it's very welcoming and southern, and you know it's very relaxed. This summer, unfortunately, we've had a lot of rain. That's my only complaint. Yeah. A little bit too much rain. Yeah. Is there a place more different than Newfoundland than Florida? I can't think of the contrasting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I occasionally tell people, you know, I'm I'm now an American citizen, but I tell people where I was born. I show them a, a picture of um, uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, right. in uh, the middle of the summer. When the wind changes uh, and uh, is uh, normally um, uh, westerly winds, it changes to easterly occasionally and blows the icebergs into the <laughs> into the harbor at St. John's Harbor. And you can stand on the um, on, on St. John's Harbor and look out the, uh, towards Britain. Uh, the first place you'll see is you know Ireland, and it's uh, solid ice yeah. as far as the eye can see. And this is in. In June and July. Right. No icebergs in Florida, so uh, you don't have to worry about that. No icebergs in Florida. Yeah, I guarantee great. you that. Yeah. No. So, I haven't, yeah. so I was going to say, let, let's, um, uh, let, let me ask this. Why, why did you write this book? You've written a lot of books. You wrote a book on uh, Stalin and, and Hitler, and, and, uh, and most of your work is on German history, per se. Your early works were sort of fundamental to uh, uh, the Nazi period. And uh, now this is a book that's basically about uh, Russian history, or I guess I'd call it international history, but it's about Stalin. So uh, why did you write this book? Well, that's, you know, well I tell you, what happened is that uh, my, my natural curiosity kept, uh, kept leading me on and on. 
um, I, I started with an interest in, in um, doing a comparative study of uh, Stalin and Hitler. Um, that was now it seems like about 10, or 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And uh, I realized that, that that maybe would not work very well because uh, I don't think it's possible to understand Stalin without understanding Lenin. And so that became a very large book called Lenin, Stalin, and Hitler. Mm-hmm. When I was finished that, I there was so much um, material that I wanted to talk about, so many more things I wanted to say about Stalin, who uh, emerged in my mind as a as an incredibly interesting character. Um, that I decided, well, you know, I would just I would just look at the at the you know how he how the cold how he got involved and. Uh, what happened to uh, Stalin in the period after 1945, and so uh, I, I didn't really know exactly how the book would turn out. I had no uh, no preconceptions. I had no. Um, I mean, I had a general familiarity with American diplomatic history, but nothing. You know, I wasn't wedded to some particular school of thought or other. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'll just you know. So I just looked at. Uh, this 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 uh, character and the people around him, and of course there was a, a huge flood of documentation um, that became available, and um, I decided I would look at the, get my own view. I, I I'm not a, a an anti-Stalin or a pro-Stalin. I'm not anti-communist or pro-communist. I'm sort of a middle of the road kind of person. Uh, I I wanted to get a in quotes objective view of it. I um I, so I went back to the sources. Um, I, I had studied Russian um, as an undergraduate, and I, you know, I went into this. Uh, and as uh, one of my friends said, when, I, when he finally saw the, the new book, um, Stalin's Curse, he said, "I didn't think you were going to go whole hog into this." <laughs> um, and so what happened is, I, I, I got involved in it, and it, it became bigger and bigger, and I ended up. With enough material, actually, I found so much uh, that was so fascinating that um, I had enough material, at least for for two volumes or even three volumes, without going past Stalin's death in 1953. Mm-hmm. So there's there so much more to say about this guy um, and, uh, and 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 the system that he he, he created and his, uh, his 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 mental world and the kinds of things he he did. Um, that I mean, he, he's he's one of the most uh, fascinating characters um, in, in in the 20th century, and I suppose one could argue he is the most um, influential um, uh, political figure of the 20th century. Um, certainly, I think he, a strong case could be made. I can't think of anybody more influential. Um, so he he everything he touched he. He, he was, um, you know, a master of understatement. Uh, um, one of these people who, uh, the more you learn about him, um, uh, the more uh, the more brilliant uh, he becomes. You know, people think that you know he's an evil genius or whatever it is. Um, they say all kinds of things about him, um, um, uh, about his mental problems and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, I mean, I think you really have to take this man seriously. How does someone who whose second language, I mean, is Russian, second language. I mean, someone who's born in the Caucasus in Georgia, which is not exactly a popular uh, uh, brand in um, in Russia, <laughs> um, as most people will know, coming from the Caucasus in Georgia. 
um, uh, and now he, he, he becomes the, the head of the, and the most powerful man, the most powerful ruler in, in, in all of Russian history. Um, it's an extraordinary accomplishment. And how, how he does all this, and at the same time, um, uh, how he has this image, uh, this theoretical understanding of the world. Um, I disagree with what he wants to do, uh, you know, very, very much. But I, I, I didn't start off by dismissing what he was up to out of hand as somehow ridiculous, or that he was a, a some some historians have said uh, he was a he was just a psychopath who liked to kill people. Well, I think he he he, he may have liked to kill people, but he had quite uh, clear political strategies. Uh, sometimes he's got out of hand, but he was very much the the um, hands-on uh, uh, ruler, um, you know, workaholic, uh, a man with a mission, uh, and so on. And you know, uh, when when you when you see how he operates and the way he the way he he deals in international situations and so forth, it's uh, it's um, it's a uh, it's amazing. That's, I mean, I can. Uh, he's an extremely one of the most exciting um, um, people um, in history that I have that I've come across, mm-hmm. and certainly one of the most controversial. I mean, there have been. I know this because I've dabbled in Soviet history a little bit. There are a number of different. I guess I might call them paradigms or ways of looking at Stalin that try to explain some of what he did in terms of internal and external policy. One, which was popular um, where I taught for a while, let's put it that way, was that there was kind of general continuity between Stalin and uh, sort of 19th century modernizing czars. That really that he was a, a sort of that he was uh, more Russian than the Russians and he was interested in pursuing Russian interests primarily and that he was not necessarily uh, driven by a kind of Marxist-Leninist or Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist ideology. He was really interested in making Russia a great power or the greatest power. And that explains... I don't think you agree with that. No. On the one hand, I I think that to to some extent he does become uh, a Russian nationalist or um, a believer in um, Russia... Uh, and I, I'm not trying to say that Russian history started in 1917. Uh, there, there are no doubt uh, strong lines of continuity in, 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 in Russian history uh, from the imperial into the Soviet period. So it's, it's overwhelming, the, the lines of continuity, especially if you look outside the big cities in the rural um, areas and so forth. So there are very strong lines of continuity, uh, and that, that, that I would not dispute. But what, what I think I, I do dispute, I think there was a, there was a, a, a fundamental break um, in the in the in the ruling strategies of the government uh, between the Tsarist regime and uh, initially uh, the Leninist and then uh, overwhelmingly the Stalinist regime, and uh, I think um, um, Stalin uh, accepted the Leninist uh, Marxist-Leninist interpretation of, of world history. And uh, the revolutionary uh, ideology that grew from that, and he uh, developed, um, he and Lenin and others, uh, Trotsky and many more, uh, developed uh, a mission for the for the Soviet Union, and this this mission in the world 
I know this sounds like something out of the 1950s, that oh, there's, a, there's this uh, bed, reds under the bed kind of thing, but they developed a mission in the world uh, that uh, to, 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 to bring revolution, the, the communist revolution to the world, and uh, it was going to start in the, in the Soviet Union, and from there, uh, of course, as you know, it, it, could, it was thought it couldn't survive in the Soviet Union without revolution elsewhere, and um, uh, the fact that revolution was stopped in 1918 and 1919 in Western Europe, um, they, 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 the Soviets they carried on anyway. And uh, the remarkable thing is uh, that um, Stalin was one of the few people who, who realized that when the next war came uh, in 1939, he realized very early on that this was a, an opportunity, uh, unlike many people in the world, he saw this as an opportunity um, to uh, take up again uh, the revolutionary cause that had been sort of put on hold uh, since the end of the Civil War uh, in the early 1920s. And so he, was going, he saw this as a, uh, the revolution, uh, that war, the Second World War, would have a revolutionary impact uh, on, on European society and, and Soviet society, um, so just as the First World War had. Mm-hmm. And the the task that had been uncomplete, not completed by the First World War would be surely completed by the Second. Mm-hmm. And he said uh, Hitler, without knowing it, is playing a revolutionary role. And he said all this in 1939 before anything really got rolling. Uh, an astounding insight that um, that historians, by the way, social historians, um, found out about uh, or started looking at that war that way only in the 1980s and 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, we already figured it out way in advance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think to understand what you've just said, we have to, again, turn back to the historiography. And I'm thinking particularly of the American or Western historiography and attempts to come to grips with uh, Stalin. And the thing that I'm reminded of is what's called the Great Retreat, the thesis concerning the Great Retreat. And this is a phrase that was used even in the 1930s, and it was the moment at which Stalin said uh, that there could be socialism in one country. Because prior to that, and again, I think this is something that people forget, uh, Lenin and his compatriots, including Stalin, never believed that there could be socialism in one country. They thought that if socialism came, it would come as a world revolution, at least among the advanced powers in Europe. That was the only way it could happen. Uh, And saying anything different would get you thrown out of the party. Uh, but all of a sudden Stalin, and then I can't remember the exact date, uh, but it was in the early 30s, I think, says, no, in fact, we can do this alone. Um, so in a sense, what you're saying is he was saying that, and he did say that. He said we can have socialism in one country, but always in the back of his mind was this notion that it really couldn't just happen in the Soviet Union. It had to happen everywhere. Is that, right. Does that make sense well, of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely does. You see, what happened is, what, 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 what is sometimes forgotten is how, how Stalin built everything around the, the Leninist, the, many of the, the Leninist uh, principles. And um, in 1923, when, uh, when Lenin introduced an economic policy, uh, this, was, this was already regarded by many hardline communists in the Soviet Union as something of a retreat. And he said, we have to take one step back. We have to take one step back. That is to say, we have to introduce some, or reintroduce, or allow some aspects of capitalism uh, or a marketplace for a time. 
until we can take a great leap forward. You see, this, 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 this great leap forward, of course, that became uh, an expression used by Mao Zedong for his, what turned out to be a disastrous uh, uh, industrialization project uh, later on. But for Stalin, the great leap forward, you see, was going to, he was, he, they, he was preparing to make this great leap forward. Um, and the, the opportunity was going to come. Uh, he didn't say this until, the, you know, he kept trying to avoid the war because he didn't think the Soviet Union was ready for the war. But when it came, he thought, he thought this would be an opportunity to take up again the, the, the Leninist cause of, of the, the, the mission, the sacred mission, to, to establish a red, the Red Empire, uh, that I call the Red Empire, which is um, an empire of, of, of communist uh, states that would be uh, you know, independent communist states and th- that would somehow be linked uh, to Moscow in some way. And so this, this, this was a great retreat, no doubt. Um, but uh, to, to prepare to take the Great Leap Forward, then Stalin, of course, um, uh, and that's, that's his, uh, his, he thought this would be the great, the, the, the great contribution that mm-hmm. Lenin thought and will realize the, the Leninist mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So After, even, even as the war, you see, he carries on the struggle through the war, even even when he's he's completely, um, you know, uh, beaten down, so to speak, in 1941 uh, after June. Even though he's completely beaten down, he never he never lets up, and and even though at the in 1944, I mean, the the, the Soviet Union is up to its eyeballs in the Second World War, losing millions of people, uh, including millions to starvation and everything else. He is still, nevertheless meeting with the heads of, of communist parties, of, of all European communist parties, who, who will be going back to their countries uh, to, to, to bring about something like a very modest uh, Soviet-style uh, uh, government. But these will be cleverly disguised, clearly disguised. Um, he, was, he was a real uh, real politiker, you know, mm-hmm. someone who believed in realistic politics. And so, you know, we, we're not, we can, we're not going to have just someone go in there and, and who's a communist and say, now I'm the head of the government. So they would go in there behind so-called national front, uh, front governments, and they would, um, they would establish these regimes, and then would slowly and surely uh, they would take over, but this would be a gradual process. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so even though he has, is devoting all this energy and, and time to winning the war, he's, he is... He is the head of the of the of the Soviet armed forces. He is responsible in excruciating detail in planning the the war. He carries the struggle right onto the war. He, at the same time as he's doing this, he's making no less. Uh, um, you know, um, his 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 strategy is no less uh, uh, important on the political front. And so he's always fighting this political front, and when he meets the the allies. Uh, the Allied leaders at the, at the uh, two wartime conferences um, in in, uh, in um, Tehran and Yalta, they are trying to win the war. That's their main and almost their entire concern. And he is trying to win the war. But at the same time, he is already focused on trying to win the peace. And uh, so that he has a uh, clearly worked out strategy um, about what, what's going to happen in and they don't, and they keep 
So they, they keep, in a way, they keep trying to appease him. And he plays in that role. He's always a, someone who's an expert at playing roles. In his role as the great statesman at these conferences, he's playing the, 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 the aggrieved uh, nationalist uh, politician whose people are, have suffered greatly, and indeed they have suffered greatly, and who needs just this one, um, one little country here and one little country there uh, to guarantee their national security. So they won't be attacked again, and no one can dispute that. Mm-hmm. And it's, in fact, also true, but just as true and perhaps even more important, he wants to be sure that these countries are, um, um, are, are politically friendly towards him, mm-hmm. towards the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the war because I think this bears on another question that you touch on in the book and I think is very relevant for understanding Stalin. Most Americans, let's just speak of Americans for a moment, think of the war as, and thought of the war, as a kind of campaign against evil. The Nazis were evil. Uh, The Japanese, it's a little bit different case, but let's just talk about the war in Europe. The Nazis were evil. Uh, They were not democratic. Uh, They were not Republican in the sense we mean Republican. They oppressed national minorities. And they were imperialists. And these are things that Americans will have nothing to do with. At least that's what Americans told themselves. Of course, parts of its fault. So we went to help our European allies on those grounds. We were about defeating this evil imperialist power. Uh, I'd say the same is true of the English and the French. Uh, How did Stalin see the battle against Hitler? What, What frame did he put it in? How did he understand it? What did he call it? I mean, how did he explain it? Oh, well, it's very, uh, Stalin's uh, understanding of, of Hitler, of course, um, um, first of all, I'll say he, in general, he would have agreed with, uh, very much, uh, with, with these war aims, the ones you've, mm-hmm. uh, you've been on. Um, he, he, he was, he was for, uh, he, he was against all the very same things that the, the other allied, mm-hmm. uh, were, were for. In that sense, he was, he was, he was, uh, they were on the same wavelength. Uh, where where he differed is uh, in his interpretation of Nazism. Um, uh, they saw Nazism as, as uh, you know the the the, the product of a, of a demented uh, and a demonic Hitler, um, and uh, you know not it was not against the German people party supposedly, but against the against this demonic um, uh, Hitler and Nazism. He saw he saw uh, Nazism in a completely different light, and uh, he uh, he also made some 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 diabolically uh, incorrect or horribly incorrect uh, interpretations of Nazism. He thought that Nazism was um, basically the, that the Nazi Party and Hitler were the were in the pay of the of the capitalists, and the the capitalists were after uh, you know what they were always after the imperialists. Out to conquer uh, um, goods and uh, territory and that, those sorts of things, and this was the uh, this was the last stage of uh, capitalism was entering its final stage, um, another final stage, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Supposedly reached it already in uh, in 1914, but never mind that. Now, the, it, so, so he he interpreted the, the Soviet. Uh, is this is my phone doing this or is it yours? I'm sorry, no, that was mine. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, so he interpreted uh, Hitler wrongly, because what he didn't understand about Hitler uh, is that uh, he was uh, something of a populist leader who 
uh, had the backing of, of, of the people. Of course, this is the title of another book, another controversial book I wrote called Backing Hitler, uh, Consent and Coercion in Nazi Germany. But that Hitler had the backing of the German people, that, he, that there was a, a, a real social movement, and that, of course, although there were opponents in Germany uh, to Hitler, the vast majority of the people were backed him, and this was a, a, gen, you know, a genuine German phenomenon, not just a, a, a Nazi or a Hitler phenomenon. So he didn't understand that um, Hitler had far, far, far broader ideological goals. So what Stalin did between um, uh, August 1939 and June 41, in August 1939, as, as, uh, as you all know, he... Uh, uh, as Stalin um, uh, arranged to have a, a, a treaty with Hitler, and it was this treaty, uh, the, the Nazi-Soviet pact, or sometimes the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, that uh, helped to unleash uh, the first the, the 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 first wave of the war against Poland. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, um, this was overlooked at the Nuremberg trials later on. Yeah, um, but that's another story. Yeah. And that's not a popular one to bring up in, in, in Russia these days, I don't think. No. But in any case, um, uh, so what he did between uh, August uh, 1939 and June 1941 was that the Soviet Union gave Nazi Germany practically everything they asked for. And this is the one that I found in, in my research, is uh, the extraordinary um, lengths to which uh, the Soviet Union and Stalin, in particular, in, in specifically Stalin, went uh, through went to to provide uh, Hitler and uh, Germany with everything, every natural resource they needed, all the food they could use, all the food they wanted, all the oil and everything else that they wanted, and it was precisely because I mean there was so much there was so much um, the goods were so enormous that were moving from east to west on the railways, that uh, the railways were, were getting clogged. The German negotiators, of, uh, however, realized that this was not a, a, a Soviet problem, but a German problem because they, they just couldn't, couldn't get enough railway cars to, 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 to cart all the, all, the, all the stuff away. And they gave them uh, these goods at very favorable prices, so much so that the German negotiators at the time said, the entire East is ours. We can have everything we want, as much as we want. And this, this indicated that, um, in, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Stalin was prepared to do everything possible to uh, satisfy his new ally, um, uh, Hitler, um, short of war. And he thought that in this way, by giving Hitler everything he wanted, that this would ensure... Uh, peace would uh, would would reign at least for the time being. He never dreamt that war would be over permanently, but that this would be mm-hmm. um, uh, an important step forward. Mm-hmm. So he saw, as I understand what you said, uh, Nazism as another one of these final stages of capitalism or perversions of capitalism, right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, so how and did he, he let me he, let, let me ask this. Okay. How did he see his allies during the war? How did he see America and France and Britain? How, what what sort of conceptual box did he put them in? Okay. Now, as far as he's concerned, uh, these are all 
these are all capitalist uh, countries. They are they are they are doomed to extinction. Uh, this doesn't mean that he uh, he doesn't want to take advantage of them and so forth. Uh, the reason that he um, he is so convinced that the the world is going his way is that he has a uh, the Marx, the Marxist Leninist theory about the progress of, of history through various stages, and that capitalism is doomed to extinction to be succeeded by uh, communism. Um, he, he's, he's completely wedded to this idea, but this doesn't mean that he's not willing to take advantage of um, these allies uh, to, to defeat Nazi Germany when indeed it comes to the war. Mm-hmm. And so did he really think of so let me put the question a little bit differently. So is it too much to say that he conceived that there would be a confrontation between um, the Soviet Union and uh, Nazi Germany, and that would be followed by some sort of confrontation between the Soviet Union and the other capitalist powers? Yes, that there, there, would be, there, there would be an inevitable clash. Mm-hmm. And ine- this, would, this would come, however, sometime, preferably way down the road. Um, uh, he, this, but that there was going to become a, a, this, this this clash. Uh, what he was absolutely convinced, mm-hmm. and uh, anything. Um, I mean, this doesn't mean he was, um, uh, you know, a false ally or something. I'm not trying to say that, but that uh, he he always had a political agenda. He, no matter what what else he said, this is the, the what what leaders from the West didn't understand when they met him is that he, he had a very specific political agenda. And no matter what he would do to mask this, um, they, and the agenda didn't, was not going to go away. So, so people, when they met him, they felt he made them feel very comfortable. He, he didn't want anyone to talk about communism. Uh, if you look through all, all the meetings they had with the Allies, the word communism or revolution or anything like this never occurs. He makes all his uh, uh, wishes known in terms of what is needed for social, for the security of the Soviet Union. He never says, uh, we want this because of our political philosophy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And even when he bumps into his allies, you know, people who come to Moscow, like the Yugoslavs who who come to Moscow, he says to them, why have you got those red stars on your hat? You don't need those red (laughs) stars. Get those those off your hat. Mm -hmm. That's going to just alarm the allies. Get them off there. Mm -hmm. And... but but what mm-hmm. did, um, did, did he trust Churchill and Roosevelt and then later Truman? Oh, I don't think so. No, I mean you know uh, not, not say trust and verify, uh, trust but verify. He he did he didn't trust them at all. I mean he, he is he, he's playing a, a double game with them the whole way through. Um, the unfortunate part about it is that he misses uh, so many opportunities. Um, well, a number of major opportunities uh, to uh, benefit his his people, um, as opposed to fulfilling his political mission, mm-hmm. the political mission as he sees it. I don't know. Have we have we mentioned the, what happened at uh, Potsdam? No, we, I think we should talk about both Potsdam. Well, we should talk about Yalta and then Potsdam because okay. you know, some people will say about Yalta that you know the standard line is at least from one point of view is that uh, Churchill. And, well, especially uh, Roosevelt was very naive, and Stalin took advantage of this naivete. Um, do, do, you have a, do you have an interpretation of that, or can you speak to that? 
Yeah, I think um, I think that the point is essentially true. I think uh, there are historians. I mean, with books that have come out in the last year or two, where they say that uh, that uh, Roosevelt won, won at uh, Yalta. Well, I'm afraid that's just not true. Um, they uh, they they all but conceded all of Stalin's political um, immediate political European political aims at that time, and um, you know they they got really nothing in return for it, except uh, something that Stalin had already promised to do, which was to um, go to war against Japan. And um, th- that, was, that was the only sort of concession. Um, the, the United States and Britain did not have a whole lot of bargaining chips um, at, uh, at Yalta. The Soviet Union had carried the bulk of the war. It had a many million strong Red Army in the field. Um, the United States and Britain hadn't uh, um, hadn't um, uh, even made uh, made it into the into the into the uh, Germany, um, and then, um, the Soviet Union was 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 perched and uh, ready for an all-out assault on the German borders, and um, you know uh, there were really unequal partners at that time. Stalin played it very very cool, though he he never made his his obvious political demands never really laid them out at all. And I think uh, Roosevelt was in the last uh, um, months of his life. Uh, he was uh, not very healthy. And, um, you know, people were uh, worried about him and disturbed at, at his appearances. And um, um, I'm afraid he wasn't in the, in the strongest position. And uh, um, Churchill was uh, determined at all costs to 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 uh, to to, to uh, if, if I dare use the word uh, to appease Stalin, um, he, he you know even in the case of Poland, um, it's it, it was a bit of a disheartening read going through all the all the all the the documents on Yalta. I must say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's move on then to uh, Potsdam. What what did you mm-hmm. learn about that? Well. The, the most interesting thing uh, that I found at Potsdam um, was, uh, was 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 the presence of Harry Truman. Uh, he was a, a breath of fresh air. I mean, sometimes people will say naive. Uh, he didn't know this much about uh, foreign policy and so on and so forth. But he was an honest man, um, a very strange creature in international. <laughs> And and you know he 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 uh, um, he he, he uh, I think he 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 had a, he had a generous uh, soul and um, he was uh, he wanted the best for his people and um, what was what one of the real turning points in history uh, at Potsdam was when uh, Truman went to Stalin um, uh, to inform him against uh, Churchill's um, uh, advice to inform him about the successful um, uh, detonation of the first atomic bomb. And um, he, he, when he approached Stalin, Stalin, he, he gave him this information, Stalin turned on his heel and said, well, I hope you make good use of it, or worse to that effect, and turned and, and walked away. And I looked really closely at all the documentation surrounding uh, that event, that, that very small episode, and all the people who were there and their memoirs and their notes at the time and everything I could find, every single note and every piece of evidence. And what's really interesting about it to me 
his uh, his uh, uh, Churchill goes over and says, "So what did he say? What did he say?" And Truman says, "He didn't ask any questions." And I've, I, the more I, I looked at this and thought about it and saw how Stalin then reacted and what he did when he went back to his offices and so forth. And in view of, of the of the tragic, disastrous situation the Soviet Union was in at that time, I, I thought, you know, here was a moment where the where the arms race and Cold War had been stopped right then and there. All Stalin had to do was to say, Mr. President, I mean, he didn't, I don't expect him to have come up with this line that day, but there were still meeting in Potsdam for days afterwards. He could have said at some point, Mr. President, I don't know what you've heard and what I said about uh, how many casualties we've, we've suffered in this war, but I have to say that it's 20 million and, and more. Um, that uh, We are in a disastrous uh, condition, but I, I see this heading, this, this new weapon here, and now we have a, a whole new dimension to the war, um, uh, to war itself, and uh, this is going to lead to uh, an escalating um, uh, effort. It's going to cost everybody, uh, especially our, our people, um, an awful lot of money. Um, and um, I want to I want to stop this now. I want to know all the secrets. Tell me all the secrets. Um, after all, we've carried the war. We've suffered millions and so on. Uh, tell us all the secrets and let's stop this uh, Cold War and arms race before it starts. And, you know, I don't know uh, uh, what Harry Truman would have said in that situation. But being and the honest character he was, I think he would have said, as he said in, in 1947 about the Marshall Plan, damn it all, yes, I, I agree, you know, we, we do have it good in America, and um, we've got to stop this now, and we've got to devote ourselves to peace and uh, trying to get uh, Europe and uh, your country back on its feet. And uh, it, it was a great turning point, I thought, uh, where history could have turned and didn't, mm-hmm. and it was a shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that, you know, that's what I you know took away from it. Of course, there was lots of uh, many other things in there, but this one uh, was the was the most monumental. Um, other things that happened, of course, uh, soon thereafter, like the, um, uh, the 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 atomic bomb, and then the Soviet war on on Japan. That that. They go bang, bang, you know, one, two, three, with all within a couple of days of each other. And that's another chapter in how the Soviet Union then, even even in this incredibly weakened position, Stalin has managed to get more than a million um, uh, troops out into the Far East, and that's a long ways away mm-hmm. from Moscow, uh, to attack Japan. And indeed, they attack Japan in what is one of the greatest uh, blitzkriegs of all time, and they get to the door of right to the door of Japan, mm-hmm. right to the right to the right to the main uh, right to the last island before uh, mainland Japan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, this was to, then, of course, what he was doing. This was bringing the political mission to bringing the the political mission to the to Asia. You see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So okay, can we say anything about Stalin's plans for post-war? Europe? Are there any planning documents, or did he meet with the Politburo oh. and say, you know, okay, so here's what we're going to do, and uh, you know, we'll 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 provide oh, aid you here. Or, you know, I, I just uh, wonder if there's anything actually on paper. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, this is where it's um, 
uh, the contrast between, let's say, the United States, Britain, and uh, the USSR is the strongest. Uh, the, 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 the Soviet Union begins planning, begins planning, uh, and he starts a specific commissions, plural, uh, to draw up uh, a post-war plans for Europe. Uh, these, uh, these, uh, the two most important um, commissions uh, are under uh, uh, Litvinov, the foreign foreign minister, and now uh, deputy foreign, foreign commissar, and now deputy foreign commissar, and um, um, uh, Ivan Maisky, the, the former um, ambassador to Britain. And they have two commissions, and they they meet and draw up very lengthy, detailed, highly detailed plans. These, these start, um, they start, I want to say in 1942 or 43, but I mean, I detail all these documents in, in the book where they draw up these very concise plans. And if you're meeting, if you're an international uh, forum and you're meeting with someone and you have drawn up all the plans and the other person there on the other side has none or vir- virtually none, uh, virtually none, as was the case with the United States and, and Great Britain. Now, they do have plans, but there's nothing like this, nothing like this. Um, uh, it, it, you are at a tremendous advantage. And so Stalin, when he would go into a meeting, he had all of this down cold. He had all of these documents and all of this, uh, you know, down to a science. And there's, to say there's a paper trail, well, I have, I'm looking at three volumes of, of, of documents here uh, sitting right in front of me. Uh, so it's, it's a vast uh, documentation. So can, can you, follow exact, can you mm-hmm. summarize what he wanted to do? I mean, does he say, you know, our goal is to do this? Well, I mean, I mean uh, well, the, go- the, goal, the goal is to uh, create what I will call the Red Empire. Uh, the Red Empire is, is, is the continuation of Lenin's uh, dream to bring revolution to the world. And the Red Empire will be the, the gradual communization or the conversion of the various one country after the next into communism. Now, this, if this is done too quickly, this is going to get the backs up of the, of the, of the capitalists, the United States and Britain. So this cannot be done overnight. This is going to take time. Uh, so we have to just go uh, gradually forward. Um, uh, he met with the Italian, uh, the French, uh, the German, and other communist leaders, and he, he gave them various kinds of advice on how to proceed, as he did with the Hungarians and others, how to proceed and not go too fast and so forth. This had to be all done very, very, in a very measured way. If there were countries that uh, could have gone or might have gone uh, communist, um, but that would be thought of by the Americans or the British as too threatening, uh, then those revolutionary movements ha- had to be just told to slow down and cool it. And this is what happened, for example, in Greece. So it's not that he didn't want a revolution in Greece. Uh, the Greek communists wanted a revolution. There was a revolutionary situation in Greece at the, uh, in 44, 45, uh, but he did not want to aid. Uh, he didn't want to aid. The, the Greek communists, he said, look, we do not have a fleet. The British have a fleet. We don't have one. And it's, uh, it's, it's silly. The correlation of powers, you have to think of the correlation of powers. <laughs> yeah, we attack when we know we can win, 
And when we don't, we retreat and hold our fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he had it all worked out. And now he was less somewhat. He also had, they also had plans, equally worked out plans for Asia. There were less, these were less well-developed because he had uh, the theory that communists, that all countries had to go through a certain stages of growth before they could or would be ready for communism. And he thought that China, uh, Vietnam, and other Asian countries were not not ripe for uh, communism. Um, When, indeed, communists uh, uh, took power in China, uh, uh, Stalin was delighted. Um, Some of his negotiations with Mao are... I go through those in the book as well. Some of the negotiations are incredible. And of course, and out of that comes um, uh, the, the war in Korea. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's all in extremely well documented now, where we can, you know, we can, we really have the documents to show uh, what the background of the war is. And I go through all this to show how Stalin and uh, the, uh, the uh, North Koreans were um, uh, responsible for the war. Mm-hmm. How, they, how they deliberately brought it about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a big question, and I know it's hard to give a summary judgment, but uh, there is an active debate about who started the Cold War. Um, do you come down on one side or another? I'm afraid I do. Mm-hmm. You see, now, I, you, I, you know, I have to tell you, I'm not a Cold Warrior. First mm-hmm. of all, I, I need to say this. I'm not a Cold Warrior. I'm not a, a, an anti- that died in the wool anti-communist, or I died in the wool communist. I'm, you know, I'm interested in historical truth only. That's it sounds boring, but that's that's the only way I can look my students in the eye mm-hmm. and say this is the only thing I'm interested in here is this. And if you find better facts, or then I'm, I, you know, I'll take back anything I say. Um, and so I have to say that on balance, the overwhelming, the overwhelming um, evidence, the overwhelming evidence is that the Soviet Union brought about the Cold War. There was a, a moment, an important moment, when this the whole. The Cold War could have been stopped, uh, even even as it was, so to speak, becoming more obvious that such thing existed. And this is in 1947. Now, in 1947, uh, uh, there was a new um, um, uh, Secretary of State, George C. Marshall, and uh, he was he he went on with these regular meetings with the foreign ministers in Moscow, and he noticed right away that Stalin was not interested in doing anything to help the European people. Now, by 1947, the situation was so bad in Europe that uh, the British were introducing for the first time in their history um, uh, um, food bread rationing. Mm -hmm. And in France, um, there were uh, uh, bread riots, which is never a very good sign in France. That's when they have revolutions. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> as it happens. And uh, in, in, in the Soviet Union in 1947, there was a, a, a genuine famine that cost in the excess of a million lives. The Soviet Union was, uh, even the parts of the country that were not uh, occupied by Germany and hadn't been in the war, were all devastated because of uh, the, the various factors there. So there was a famine there. Now, what Marshall did when he, when he came home from the meeting in Moscow in 1947, he said, listen, uh, this, is, this has got to stop. We've got to do something to help the, the Europeans to get out of the mess they're in. Uh, they don't have enough money. They don't have a plan. They don't, they don't know what to do. We, have to, we need to, to work out a, a, something to help them. And so they drew up a plan 
And the plan, the plan was a very simple one. Marshall said, I want to deliver this plan. I, I want to give the talk at Harvard. Uh, it's it's got to be uh, less than 15 minutes. <laughs> so the, so, so when, when the British and the French heard this, they said, well, this is too good to be true. But this is, this, this is the essence of it. We will aid the Europeans, but they, have, they, they, the Europeans, have to draw up the plan. And if the plan um, uh, is a good plan, we will do what we can to support it. This money, the plan has to apply. The money has to be offered to the Soviet Union as well, to the Soviet Union as well, and to all the satellite countries, the countries that are becoming satellites, like Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, and so on. Um, all of these countries have to be offered the aid as well. And now, revisionist historians have said, oh, the American, uh, um, um, Americans in, in, um, in Washington were praying that the Soviets were going to turn it down. But it was Stalin's decision. And Stalin, not only did Stalin turn it down, he went to the, his, his foreign minister, uh, Molotov went to the meetings, all he wanted to know is, how much will the Americans pay? <laughs> and they, they stormed out of the meeting. But this was a, this was a vital moment in, in European history. And um, so, so the Marshall play, plan was a plan that then the Europeans drew up uh, without the Soviet Union uh, and, and, and uh, without Poland. And even though these countries were desperately poor, also, all in desperate straits, and, and wanted to, to participate in the, in, in the Marshall Aid Plan and to get this, uh, this uh, support at a vital time in their history. But no country in Europe needed this, this aid and this plan more than the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union was in dire condition. I mean, even the parts of the country of the Soviet Union, and that's part of what I try to do in the book, is, is to bring in the Soviet context, the Soviet domestic context, to what was going on there into the discussion about the Cold War, because frequently well, all we get is a, is a discussion of what, what goes on between Washington and Moscow and Paris and London, but we don't actually find out much of what's going on inside the Soviet Union. And that's the vital social context. And that makes the, the, his Stalin's refusal to, to accept the Marshall Aid Plan all the more difficult to understand. I mean, it's impossible in, for me here now in a short time to convey how poor they were in the Soviet Union, but even in the parts of the country that were not affected. I mean, I'm reading from a book, uh, I'm reading a book right now um, by Donald Filzer. It's called The Hazards of Urban Life in Late Stalinist Russia. And this has not an easy read, I will admit. But he, he shows the, the, how, how desperate the situation was in places that were not even affected by um, the war. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's heartrending. It's heartrending. Mm-hmm. And in 1947, the Soviet Union itself, as I said, had a famine. And I mean, as bad as it was, and it was terrible and all across Europe, in the Soviet Union, it was arguably worse than anywhere in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And um, that, however, that becomes a, a crucial moment in, in, in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. It's not that Truman Plan or the, the Truman Doctrine, no one took that seriously um, at all. But what was really important was that Marshall Plan. And now suddenly you have this dramatic contrast. It happens that seemingly overnight. Of course, it's not quite an overnight miracle. But what it is, it, it costs a substantial percentage of the American budget to pay for this. And, and yet, uh, 
Uh, no one, uh, no one opposed it. Uh, the Republicans, and this was a, you know, there was a, a Republican House and a Republican Senate, and they passed it. And one of the Republican senators who was leading this to get it through, you know, people said, oh, this is too much money. We can't give all this much money. He said, listen, um, the worst of this attack, you don't, you don't throw a 10-foot line to a man that's dying, that, that's drowning 15 feet from shore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they, they got that through. And it, it was a miracle because all it needed was, you know, there was a lot of infrastructure there uh, in, in Western Europe. Uh, already, he was ready to go, so to speak. It needed a spark. It needed some way to, to be able to import enough uh, to, to get the machinery going, get the life back going again. And and um, the Soviet in uh, the Soviet Union and the Soviet sphere, they paid for this price. They never got over the Second World War. Mm-hmm. The Soviet sphere in the Soviet Union itself, the gap between the, the well-being of the people, um, the wealth, the, the GDP, however you want to measure it. Uh, it, it starts widening between the United States and the Soviet Union um, from that, from this point on. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a it's a tragedy, and involved in it as well. Not only is a tragedy for the people, and you know it's not a good thing for the United States to have had to spend all that much money on the um, the Cold War. We can imagine the kinds of things we could have done with all the money that was that was we had to spend on these. Um, on these weapons and wars and so on, mm-hmm. so it, it's it's a it's a sad tale for everyone, but um, it's really heartrending, honestly. If you read much um, about what the people in the Soviet Union were going through mm-hmm. um, in in the immediate post-war, that's that's. It's just terrible. Mm-hmm. So we're about out of time. I have a couple of questions. One is very specific and one is general. Let me begin with a specific question. It's something I learned in your book. And uh, let me give a little background. Stalin didn't really leave a political testament. He didn't leave a document that says you should do this, 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 and the other thing. Um, Lenin, right. in fact, did leave one. Uh, however, you mentioned that in place of a testament, a kind of formal testament, he got very interested in this massive work of economics. Do you remember this in the yes. book? Yes. This and he yes. convenes all of this, these experts. You mentioned two hundred and fifty at some point, and uh, and he worked really hard on it. He, he really he he spent a lot of time on it. He considered himself something of an intellectual and expert, and this was going to be his intellectual legacy. I'd never heard of this book at all, uh, and it was yeah. he, he didn't leave to see it live to see it published. It was published in fifty four, right? Right. Can you tell? Right. Has anybody ever read this book, or what does it say? Have you have you looked at it? Well, I, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, oh yeah, but, you know, it's just. It's, well, you see, you see, what is what we 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 forget is that um, by 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 the let's say the late 1940s and uh, early 1950s before he died, Stalin had become all all but a, a a god, and he had to be consulted on all all intellectual matters, whether it had to do with physics or genetics, especially with genetics and um, and, and plants and things like that, but. Um, he, he then got it into his head. Actually, he got it into his head already in, in the 1930s um, that he wanted to he wanted to leave a, um, a, an opus, a, a work that was greater than uh, the one that Marx or Lenin left. Mm-hmm. And so he decided he he after all they after all had uh, and Marx had drawn up the theory and uh, Lenin got them into power, but Stalin made it all work. So mm-hmm. he was the one, he was the real, you know, the, the real engineer. Um, 
And uh, so he was going to put these lessons all down. And these had to be, now, this, this, these all had to be done, this had to be scientific, science. And he wasn't going to have any of this sort of feel-good stuff. It all had to be science. And so he brought in all these intellectuals and supposed to work on it. And I say in the book, geez, you know, for these people, to, for, 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 in quotes, a scientific approach by economists to, to say why it was that the, that the peasants loved the, the, to join the collective farms and <laughs> to say objectively how well these were working and so forth. This was going to be a tall order for any uh, economist to, to show. And so the, the, the thing goes through any number of revisions. And no matter what else is going on, in addition to all the other projects he's going on, and there's dozens of them, he is working away on his, this magnum opus, and there's more drafts and more drafts. At one stage, the entire Central Committee meets and uh, discusses the draft, and, so, and he puts, you know, um, uh, um, all kinds of other, uh, le- the leading intellectuals, and they, they then come and talk to him. They, they then come talk, and, and they hear these, uh, you know, all these incredibly wonderful words from him. And, of course, this is, um, this is going to be his, his dream his dream book. Well, you know, um, and, uh, the, the final draft, the ultimate final, final, final draft was due in March 1953, and of course he died before he saw it. So that was a little bit of a, uh, um, I guess, uh, sad ending to his to his quest. Uh, the book then it does eventually make it into uh, a form of a textbook, but it. It never really, it never really, um, it never really takes off. Um, it's quietly, it's quietly ignored. Most people probably have never heard of it. Um, it's it's um, it's a it's a, a sort of modern day, um, um, like uh, look at me, ye um, mighty and despairing, sort of the tale of Ozymandias. Um, uh, but it was it's a it's a classic case of uh, someone who. And you see, I, I, I've tried to avoid all the way through the book. I tried to avoid that this guy has is, is, is a psychopathic killer, or has you know. Of course, everybody has their problems, but his mission is what's sacred to him, and this mm-hmm. is the, this is the holy grail to him. Mm-hmm. And he feels that this is this is his his request. Uh, when he died, the 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 the, the, the guards did a. Um, uh, a summary of, of his worldly belongings and put it down on a single page and you know it reads like something from um, from a, a very poor college student's uh, mm-hmm. dormitory yeah. minus uh, you know uh, just like a, a, a two pairs of boots and you know this certainly nothing nothing mm-hmm. um, so he, he lived for the revolution I mean he he, he wore many guises but he was a re- he was a revolutionary uh, from the beginning to the end of his life, I, I think he, I mean, that's uh, too strong. He was a revolutionary from, from, I try to track when he actually becomes a revolutionary, very briefly anyway, and, and when he, when he decides at the moment that not only does he want to live for the revolution, but he's willing to kill for it. Mm-hmm. I try to track down when he killed first, or at least when he ordered the first killings, because I thought that was a sort of uh, an important moment. And that comes in the Civil War back in uh, 1919, but it's um, at a at a town. Uh, it's a little town, um, at the, or an important town, but uh, at the at the time, and um, he's his his colleagues thought 
the, the event was of some significance, I guess, because later they renamed the town um, Stalingrad, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. actually. So, so I uh, thought it was crazy. The, the- uh, I find that all very interesting, especially about this book I knew nothing of, because one of the things that occurs to me about Stalin particularly is that he tried to uphold the emphasis that I think the Bolsheviks from the late 20, sort of late um, 19th century, early 20th century, especially Lenin, that the leaders would be intellectuals, that they would write yes. uh, things. And, you know, yes. later this becomes kind of a, a real farce. Under, especially Brezhnev, because there are even jokes about Brezhnev's books. Of course, he never writes any of them. Um, but Stalin did actually write these things himself. Like, I, I know that, you know, he writes this very famous tract, I guess it's in 46 or 47, called A Few Questions About Linguistics, which was yes. ubiquitous, yes. just absolutely ubiquitous. Yes. And, you know, I have yes. copies of it that I collected in the Soviet Union. Um, yes. I, I just find that kind of interesting that he thought of himself, really thought of himself in the tradition of, of Marx and, uh, and Lenin. Uh, yeah. In the sense that he was an intellectual, he was somebody who really, you know, his first calling was, was, was to to be a kind of philosopher. Um, yes. Yeah, and I just, that's just fascinating to me because it it puts him in a different frame. I think it it takes him. It does. It makes him much less it, Machiavellian. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Well, you see, I think uh, he. What you know, the, some of the interesting documentation that's come out of this out now since the. The, the, the archives have been opened. Some of the in, most interesting is when he's when he's actually interviewing, uh, or well, some would call it um, um, uh, interrogating, but he, he's interviewing uh, the the leading intellectuals. For example, he brings in the Sergei Eisenstein, the, mm-hmm. the film director, and he he you know, and he he's questioning him about Ivan the Terrible, mm-hmm. and he liked part one, but he didn't like part <laughs> two. But what's Interesting about it is the, the, the nature of the of the exchange that goes on between them. Uh, you know, when he had brings in, in in poets and says, "What's um, you know?" He, he's the guy, after all, who in, who 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 is the one who comes up with the idea of socialist realism. Mm-hmm. That that good art is the kind of art, or good literature is the kind of literature that fosters the revolution, and uh, that's what socialist art should do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this this abstract music and abstract painting, this is uh, this is uh, not going to happen. We don't want modernist uh, poets. Uh, we know, but he knows all the poets, and he's read all the books, and you know he's gone through all the the various uh, leaders and the centuries and the, the errors and the omissions and so forth that they've made. So he's extremely well-informed, mm-hmm. a voracious reader, and so on. Yeah, so no, it's, not, I, it's not the image you usually have. Yeah, no, it really, it really isn't. Uh, it, it, it really isn't the image you usually have. But he, do, he does, I want to say, you know, metal is the word that comes to mind, but it's more than that. I mean, he's truly interested in it. He's not, he's not, he's not it, feigning he it. Is. He really is interested. I mean, Brezhnev could care less. He wanted to go to Sochi and hang out, you know, and, and he had books written in his name. Uh, but Stalin yes. was a, a much more, I, you know, again, I'm going to put serious in quotes, but serious intellectual. He really thought of himself as somebody like that. So let me ask the, the final and, and general question. Um, and it's really, I ask you to respond to a statement. I think it was Stephen Kotkin or somebody like that who said that uh, um, the Soviet Union was killed by a kind of unyielding idealism. That the problem was that the Soviet leaders really failed to understand that the ideas that they began the revolution with 
were ineffective in doing what they wanted to do. And the great contrast here is China, where the Chinese leaders, at least starting, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago, came to the conclusion that the ideas that they had started the revolution with were not working to bring prosperity to the people because that's what communism promised. And so they switched gears. And the result is modern China, which is, of course, still communist, at least in name, and is run by a single party, but it's very prosperous. And and what Kotkin points out, and many people I think have now pointed out, is that the Bolsheviks were just unyielding in this way. They had the truth, and they were going to stick to it no matter what happened. And you've definitely portrayed Stalin in that way. I mean, he's an ideologue in in your depiction. But it seems to me it also – it it continues after he's done. He's not the only one of these people that's sort of trapped by – Oh, yes, I see. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, so he's one of – I think they totally bought – I think they totally bought into the Stalinist uh, um, heritage – and they, 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 that this was, uh, these were, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, he brought these guys into power. He, he was, uh, you know, in the, in the terror in the 30s, these are the new men, the Brezhnevs and so on. These are the people who, 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 who got their break. And he got them in there. And so they, they were, they were, so to speak, raised on these ideas. I think it's, it is absolutely true that they, they were completely unyielding. Uh, and they they were so so committed to this uh, to this uh, ideology that, that and no nothing was was going to was going to throw them off the, off the rails. The idea of, um, of the revolution, uh, unfortunately, I don't know if Stephen Cotton mentions this, but the but the idea of the revolution and their principles become unfortunately more important than the people. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start as a leader, when you start putting your ideas or your principles or right. whatever in front before uh, the, the well-being of the people, then we have something that we can really call tyranny. Mm-hmm. Because that's the, that's the, that's the, the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. You put the, your ideas uh, before the people. And unfortunately, um, and what happened is that um, the, the, the people in the Soviet Union, and you know this from studying earlier centuries, you know the, the good people, uh, the good Soviet, uh, Russian, Ukrainian people, and so on. Um, they they really didn't want to embrace this. Um, uh, the majority didn't really want to embrace this mm-hmm. ideology, and uh, Lenin and and Co had no no difficulty in saying, well, um, of course, um, you know this is false consciousness. So what you have to do is we need, uh, I'm afraid, terror. Yeah. So um, they introduced the, the, you know, terror from almost from day one, and um, you know, uh, it, it, it was a socialist experiment um, with a, a truly disastrous consequences. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, this red empire I said he was going to create. This doesn't necessarily mean. Not like an enlarged, literally enlarged Soviet Union worldwide, but I think what he—they he, never really worked out what this, what, what the relationship would be between the various states out there, and and Moscow. Somehow, I think they all thought uh, th- that these people would be inspired and would naturally want to follow Moscow's example, but he never really, they never really worked out what the Red Empire was, how it was going to be held together. Um, the way the British did, for example, they made it clear. But what happened in the in the, in, in the in, in after the Marshall Plan, uh, uh, you know, was turned down, and and the, the worlds really became divided. Is that Stalin said, well, hmm, well, maybe we ought to rethink this Red Empire a little bit, and uh, uh, you know, formalize uh, ever such a little um, these relationships between the 
the other communist states and ourselves. Mm-hmm. And of course, that that then just made the whole situation uh, even worse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, they, they, I was going to mm-hmm. say the, the thing that really is 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 interesting to me is the degree to which the leaders of the Soviet Union were able to maintain a faith in an idea regardless of the consequences of the imposition of that idea. I find just that is fascinating to me. And I think it's partially because I'm an American and we are so uh, pragmatic. At least I think we are. You know, if we, yes. we will abandon an idea in a second if it doesn't serve yes. our interest. You know, we, and, you know, and Tocqueville pointed this out. I mean, in many ways, it makes us kind of wishy-washy. Uh, if it doesn't yes. work, we're not going to do it. And we're not very principled right. people in that way. Uh, yes, the British say if it's not useful. Yeah, if it's right. not useful, we'll just drop it. Right, yeah. And, I, and this may be an American national characteristic. I don't know. But it seems to me like, you know, if it doesn't work, we're not going to do it. And That's it's right. just the opposite for, for these guys, that they, they had yes. this idea. They were not going to depart from it. They served the idea, regardless of they had yes. incredible faith. And, you know, in a way, in some contexts, that is a real virtue uh, in this context. Yes. Uh, I think we know from yes. from de- centuries and centuries of political science, it is not a virtue. Uh, no, it's right. not. It's not you know, a virtue. Yeah. You know, I mean, what what I find, um, uh, you know, um, uh, while it's difficult for me to comprehend, and it is, uh, you know, did I mention about going to Washington on uh, March the fifth? No. I don't think I did. Well, this may be a good way to end. But on March the 5th uh, um, this year, I, I went to Washington to talk about the book. Uh, the book was published on March the 5th, which I thought was incredibly significant. It was really just a coincidence, but this was the 60th anniversary of Stalin's death. And so I thought, you know, because here I was so excited by the book because I was discovering all this anew. And uh, so much of it is, of course, really new in the sense that it's just coming out of the archives. That I said, you know, this is so exciting and so forth um, that, that, you know, everyone's going to recognize the significance of this because the story is it's such a compelling story. It's surely the greatest story of the, of the 20th century. Not necessarily that my book is the greatest book of the 20th century, but <laughs> that story is. Yeah. That story is. Yeah. And nobody noticed, actually. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I thought, well, where's the, where are the, where's the media, you know, beating them off? Well, right. I didn't have to beat them off. Right. Um, <laughs> the only thing worse than having the, uh, uh, the media phoning you all the time is not having anybody yeah. phone. That yeah. turns out that's the worst thing. It's even worse. Yeah, yeah, no, I but, see what you mean. Yeah. You know, in 1945, you know, uh, in 1944 45, the Soviet Union was um, the first to liberate the Nazi concentration camps, especially the death camps. And um, they knew a lot more details. They put in commissions to figure out what had happened, and they knew all the details, and they were going to, you know, this was going to become a book, and this and the other thing. And suddenly Stalin put the clamps on and said, no, um, um, these aren't Jews, these are ordinary Soviet citizens. And so, uh, strange to say, uh, this became, um, they, the Soviet Union became the first uh, Holocaust deniers. I mean, mm-hmm. they, 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 not that they denied that all these people died, they didn't deny that, but what they denied is that they denied their ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And so these people were um, posthumously then converted into ordinary Soviet citizens. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is really, you know, a, a really troubling story because this is supposed to be a war of good against evil, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the Second World War, good, evil, I mean, it's quite clear. Now, what the heck is this? And so I, I, 
you know, of course, now people, of course, will look, they'll object, they'll object to everything. Uh, but what's, what's astonishing to me about it is, like, why, why did this happen? And I, I, I came to believe that Stalin knew, he instinctively knew that um, the Holocaust was going to become a bigger story than the Soviet Union and his attempt to, uh, their attempt to carry out this uh, great socialist experiment. And so he played it down. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a way, going back to, to my own case here, in a way, I, I think he was right. Um, um, the, the, the Holocaust has become the, the Holocaust in the Second war, World War, at least from the Western point of view, um, uh, is the biggest story of the, of the, of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a survey of my of my friends at the, the scientific survey of um, my friends at the fitness uh, club where I go, <laughs> and, and they all uh, they all agreed. I said, "Well, just list the list the, the the ten top stories of the 20th century, ten you know big stories." And all of them, all of them, uh, in the first top three were something like um, um, the Holocaust, Second World War, uh, Hitler, or Hitler Holocaust, Second World War, something you know in those mm-hmm. in variations. But Stalin and the Cold War, uh, they were, Stalin was way down the list, mm-hmm. and the Cold War um, has been already forgotten. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, 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 it's astonishing how fast and how, uh, we've, we've forgotten yeah. what happened. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, You're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, well, I don't want to go on and on autobiographically, but I remember, you know, uh, in the 1980s when I was going to college that it was something people talked about. You know, it was communism yeah. was something people talked about. And uh, sure. now nobody talks about it at all. And maybe that's a good thing. No. I, I don't know if it's a good thing or not. So anyway, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time today. We've been talking with Robert Gelatoli about his book, Stalin's Curse, Battling for Communism in War and Cold War. Robert, we have a traditional final question on new books, on the New Books Network, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? What's your current project? Well, what's happened is, um, what's happened is, um, I've never entirely been able to, um, get over my interest in, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, and the Third Reich. So I, I've, re- I've, I've returned to that, and, um, I'm, I'm reading all the, the new documentation and the, uh, books that have come out on that recently. And so the next book was, is going to be on something, uh, on on uh, Hitler and the Third Reich, mm-hmm. but exactly what? Um, there's a, I've got one project uh, already underway, but the the bigger sort of writing project, I haven't fully decided exactly what. But um, let's say I'm 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 getting uh, itchy fingers again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you never really know what you think until you write it down. At least that's my no, that's my experience. I always go, I always go like I'm going to write this, and then I start to write, and then I write something else. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. Well, that's, that's why I had, you know I had no intention of writing a book on Stalin, yeah. but it, the, the story and the and the documentation and so on was there, and it's such a compelling uh, story and so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're very um, glad we're very glad that you did write it. So, um, I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. Uh, today, but I especially want to thank Robert Geladley for being on the show again. Thanks, Robert. Okay, thank you very much, Marshall. Very much. Bye-bye.